Welcome, everyone. You're listening to Horizontes, Latin America's Leadership Forum. Our focus is on developing business leaders in Latin America. That is, the skills and topics that leaders need to succeed. I'm John Price, your host. Horizontes is brought to you by America's Market Intelligence, the leading market intelligence consultancy for Latin America. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Dr. Robert Evan Ellis, one of the preeminent scholars on the subject of China-Latin American geopolitical and commercial engagement. Dr. Ellis has published five books and dozens of articles on the broad, complex, and evolving relationship between China, its companies, its branches of government, its military, its intelligence services, and its cultural diplomats with Latin America. Over the course of two decades, China trade with Latin America has grown by tenfold. China is now the largest bilateral lender to Latin American countries and the leading foreign investor in several countries and sectors. The dramatic pace of change found in Latin American relationship means that it defies stereotyping. Very few people take it upon themselves to stay up to date with their knowledge of the relationship the way that Dr. Ellis has for the last 15 years since he started publishing on Sino-Latin American engagement. Evan, so great to see you. Thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. Been looking forward to this conversation for a while. A pleasure to be on the podcast with you, John. Great. Evan, um, you know, I've, before we delve into the subject of China's engagement in Latin America, an area where you are a bona fide expert, have uh, published five books and uh, many, many articles on the subject, and I've been following you on this subject now for a decade. But I'm I, one thing that's always uh, I've always wondered is, and now that I've taken the time to look up and see where you grew up, um, which I understand is a place called Centerville, Ohio. So I'm curious how a chap from Centerville, Ohio, ends up being one of the most preeminent China Latin American experts. So give us a, a, a bit of a timeline on what brought you to this point in life and uh, how. Connect the dots for us as from center point to where you are today. Sure. Well, I appreciate the kind characterization, John. But in general, I think probably growing up, I benefited from the fact that through my high school and college, I did competitive public speaking, which I think really helped me to organize my thoughts and try to get to the point about what mattered on particular international events. But with respect to my career, I uh, got my PhD in comparative politics. I was always fascinated by a world uh, beyond my own. I took a job uh, after that uh, working in, in the private sector, working largely defense issues, uh, as well as some commercial strategic planning. And I think just in addition to that, uh, you know, teaching me how to, to hustle and seek opportunities, uh, it also um, alerted me to seeing some of the connections between the, the government work that I was doing and what was important in, in, in the private sector. But uh, to get to uh, China, Latin America, uh, basically, uh, I was looking for opportunities to do defense analysis in the early 2000s. And I stumbled across the topic as something that was important and started writing on it at a time when nobody else was really uh, talking about it. Um, really, along the way, I was, I was very fortunate that uh, then as a relatively young analyst, uh, that there were a number of, of senior people uh, that opened up important doors to me. And, and I always uh, really uh, appreciate that. 
But uh, my first big break on the government side uh, came in uh, 2008. I uh, got a position at a place called the uh, uh, William J. Perry Center for Hemispheric Defense Studies. They basically needed somebody who had a combination of, of wargaming experience, Spanish, um, and um, and some academic credentials. And so they brought me on to, to basically do the Spanish language strategic level wargaming with our Latin American defense partners. So that was important for me because it really helped me to expand my ties with the armed forces of the region. Uh, and then uh, in uh, 2014, I had an opportunity to uh, take a position at the Army War College as the Latin America Research Professor. And so that really helped me um, to use that as a platform for uh, supporting a number of different uh, DOD and other uh, U.S. government activities that were uh, increasingly interested in our response to uh, China and, and Latin America. Um, probably one of the uh, the heights of, of my career was in 2019. Uh, then the Secretary of State, uh, um, Mike Pompeo, uh, gave me the opportunity to be a part of his policy planning staff with responsibility for Latin America and in the Caribbean. And that really uh, gave me an important opportunity to have uh, some interagency experience uh, working at, at the State Department. But uh, then I probably also widely, wisely chose in the middle of the pandemic to return to the, the Army War College, where I continue today. So it's been a, somewhat of a circuitous uh, route, but I think I've uh, come to appreciate the importance of, of being cross-disciplinary, uh, you know, business, government, uh, different aspects of, of commercial, financial, uh, to really try to look uh, in those seams where oftentimes other people are not looking. I think that's what's generally worked for me. And and when you were in those government positions, was it part of your work mandate to publish on, on China issues? Um, it was Did they give you the time and, and sort of permission to do that? It, it was in uh, various different aspects. And so when I was at the Perry Center, uh, part of the mandate was to be as, as a practicing academic. And so as I saw things in Latin America, I continued to, to publish on them. Uh, of course, as the Latin America research professor at the Army War College, it was um, really the, the core of my responsibility to, uh, you know, publish on, on these issues as well as outreach. And, and over the years, uh, China Latin America kind of became one of the issues that I was most uh, known for. And, and so that certainly helped. Uh, probably the only time that I was not able to openly publish was when I was on the Secretary of State's policy planning staff. I certainly did a lot of writing during that period, but that was writing for the secretary and, and internal audiences. Yeah, sure. That makes sense. Um, you know, for some, uh, the strong presence of China in Latin America may seem sudden, but Chinese commercial and political interests in the region have at least two, if not two and a half decades behind them. Wouldn't you say that's a, that's about right in terms of the, the you know, the, the real engagement? Um, what do you think or what in your mind first drove Chinese engagement with Latin America? Well, you're absolutely right. Uh you can really go back to uh, China's opening to the world with uh, Deng Xiaoping in, in 1978. Uh, and even then, uh, I saw the primary uh, impulse with Latin America and elsewhere is uh, China really seeking to develop a uh, model of success uh, based on what was initially uh, leveraging its its manufacturing uh, capabilities in an interdependent world. But in many ways, uh, what drove it to Latin America was what I would call the imperatives of success. And so um, as the Chinese economy expanded, as its needs for petroleum and, and other commodity factor inputs and, and foodstuffs for the, the Chinese people uh, forced it to go beyond what it could get from within China and in Asia itself, as also its uh, need to appeal to uh, markets beyond just the established markets of, of the United States and in Europe all drove it to seek opportunities in, in other uh, parts of the world. 
probably the, the key point uh, was also the uh, what came to be known as, as the go-out strategy, which was made official at the uh, 10th uh, five-year uh, planning session of the Chinese Communist Party. In many ways, uh, Chinese companies, SOEs and others, uh, had long known that they had to develop greater ties with the rest of the world before that. But in some ways, this really blessed, gave kind of the official blessing of what they already uh, knew that they needed to, to do. But in general, with respect to China's objectives in, in Latin America, and I see this as broadly consistent with their objectives in the rest of their global engagement, with uh, the differences oftentimes arising from the different characteristics of the regime and their historical relationships and, and the particular economic opportunities and, and markets that, that individual governments uh, have. But uh, in general, I see it as an effort to um, to get that, that secure access to sources of supply, foodstuffs, markets, and, and other things. Um, but increasingly, as China's power um, and reach has evolved, there's also been uh, ever more a, a desire to try to shape some of those global political and economic institutions, uh, uh, the, the United Nations, but also uh, financial institutions, to ensure a world that is safe for that continued pursuit of its economic and other goals. Now, this pursuit of secure source of vital uh, inputs for manufacturing, but also to feed their people, uh, a populace that uh, demands more protein-rich diet over time, et cetera, um, that echoes what Japan and Korea went through at earlier stages. Um, two other countries, manufacturing powerhouses, relatively wealthy, but insufficient natural resources themselves. They chose to purchase or, or, or negotiate long-term supplier contracts. The Chinese seem more interested in investing in, uh, if you like, vertical, vertical integration, buying companies that can supply resources. Is that a function or is that a direct result of their currency policy, which has helped them amass, I guess it's close, over $2 trillion of U.S. reserves and a desire to keep their currency relatively cheap and competitive by spending dollars abroad? Well, you, you raise a number of, of interesting points. Um, and number one, I think one can say that uh, um, many of the cultures from the region, uh, the, the Japanese, the Koreans, and, and the Chinese, have long had um, limited faith in the ability to uh, purchase what one needed uh, through through markets. Although uh, certainly the, the Chinese have had uh, far less faith. Uh, but in the early years of, of China's engagement, you actually did see uh, working through um, you know, different uh, commodities exchanges to obtain the resources that they needed, as well as uh, working through through uh, various other U.S. and European uh, companies to uh, to try to place their products in, in places like Latin America. But over time, as uh, the PRC got um, more uh, more experience, especially its companies and, and built ties, financial ties, legal ties, personal ties, uh, it really took until about 2010 that uh, it was really ready to uh, start expanding it, its more direct presence. Uh, now, as you point out, a, a certain element of that also is is the question of uh, what would China do with uh, those massive uh, you know, accumulated currency reserves? And so for many years, it would uh, invest it into treasuries and other uh, you know, U.S. instruments. Um, 
and uh, over time, it began to see the the importance of, of starting to try to invest a certain portion of that uh, directly. And so uh, that certainly did fuel not only an investment, but also in some of the, the banking relationships. But that also came with a tremendous cost because uh, arguably uh, China's uh, wisdom of doing uh, risk management has never been uh, the best. And so you saw it pouring, you know, almost $64 billion into, into Venezuela. You saw it pouring uh, almost, uh, you know, $15 billion in, into Ecuador, uh, among others, uh, in pursuit of these projects. Um, and, you know, over time, an estimated, uh, you know, $1 trillion into Belt and Road projects, um, only uh, a portion of which have, have worked out uh, that well. But uh, I, I would say definitely there's a combination of the, the imperatives of experience and, and needs. Um, and you're absolutely right. The uh, the role of, uh, you know, what to do with that pile of money that's been sitting on has been uh, part of the problem. We hope you're enjoying this latest edition of the Horizontes Leadership Podcasts, a series of conversations designed to inform, instruct, and inspire Latin American business leaders. Entrepreneurs, politicians, business magnates, inventors, authors, subject matter experts, financiers, and cultural icons from across Latin America are among our guests. We hope you find these podcasts as compelling to listen to as we find them interesting to produce. If you wish to also receive our curated reading list of the latest articles, white papers, and interviews we circulate each week, write to us at horizontes at americasme.com. That's H-O-R-I-Z-O-N-T-E-S at A-M-E. R-I-C-A-S-M-I dot com. And now, back to the Horizontes podcast. Good, good. Thank you. Um, it's good to confirm that. I, but what you're saying is it's, it's only portion of a larger strategy. Um, now, Chinese foreign engagement, including with Latin America, um, I think for what I've discerned from reading your texts, is really a derivative of Chinese domestic concerns, much like U.S. foreign policy is often an extension of domestic political concerns and economic concerns. Um, and with that in mind, how do you believe the objectives of China's engagement in Latin America have evolved or changed over the last 20 years? And what are some of the pinnacle moments that you would identify in that arc of history? Well, for me, it's not so much a change in the overall objectives is an evolution in what I would call the style, the level of confidence that the Chinese government is, is pursued, um, and the particular focus areas uh, within those those evolving uh, objectives. Um, and certainly, uh, there's a certain amount of, of learning that's taken place both at the state level as, as well as the, the corporate level and, and the evolution of, of relationships, and really the evolution of the world itself over the past 20 years. But in terms of some of the, the key moments, uh, certainly one of them, you could point to the uh, 2008 global financial crisis. In many ways, for me, this was a bit of the perfect storm. Uh, as we referred to a few minutes ago, uh, on the one hand, you had the growing need uh, to, to reach out and, and build those relationships by, by Chinese companies, but also uh, the growing experience in operating as um, foreign-oriented uh, entities, as well as the building of relationships that allowed them to, to move into um, the region uh, with respect to more of a, of a presence on the, on the ground. In some of those cases, it was through mergers and acquisition, and some of 
the cases it was is through Greenfield. Um, but what you really saw is that in the period from about 2008 to 2010, there was a takeoff in the Chinese physical presence uh, in Latin America and in other places. And that brought, on the one hand, a lot of accelerated conflict that the Chinese state and the companies had to deal with, as well as accelerated opportunities from, from learning how to actually deal in those nuanced and sometimes um, you know difficult uh, circumstances of those those countries uh, probably another important uh, milestone certainly was uh, the ascension to the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party of Xi Jinping in November 2012 and of course later his ascension to the presidency uh, in many ways um uh, the Xi era really coincided with uh, a broader process in China which was the growing wealth and in power of of the PRC. Um, and within Chinese culture, that growing wealth and power actually contributed uh, to uh, certain expectations then regarding uh, the degree to which uh, you know, the PRC had to kind of uh, bide its uh, capabilities and, and bow its head versus uh, being more assertive of what it believed was its rights and what it believed it could expect its partners uh, to, to do. Um, but certainly, uh, she put his own personal style on that. Uh, you can see that reflected with, uh, you know, uh, uh, people within his government, such as Wang Yi and, and the, the wolf warrior diplomacy of, of many uh, Chinese uh, diplomats. But a couple of the other things that began to, I believe, change and evolve over this period, um, you know, certainly there was an increased focus on what I would call multilateral engagement. So in Latin America, where the Chinese had long been present in the Organization of American States and, and entities like the Inter-American Development Bank, you began to see a, a focus on CELAC, the community of Latin America and Caribbean states, uh, really building not only uh, you know, summitry, but, but also putting forth uh, multi-year plans, uh, setting forth committees to really take forward the Chinese interests in important new ways. But some of the other things that were going on across the spectrum at the time, also important to recognize that in 2016, in January, you had the um, replacement of the Guomindan, the KMT government in um, in Taiwan, with a new uh, DPP government, uh, which was uh, much more uh, hostile towards China. And so as that led to the breakdown of the um, the diplomatic truce that existed between China and in, in Taiwan, you saw you started seeing first in Africa, but then in Latin America, um, the resumption of the struggle over diplomatic recognition. And so in Latin America, you had first Panama's flip in, in 2017, followed by the Dominican Republic in El Salvador. So again, uh, ushering in kind of a whole new dimension to how China was, was proceeding in, in Latin America. Um, another important uh, moment is, is probably what I would call Latin America's retrenchment. So as your listeners will recall, um, in about 2014, 2015, you began to see deceleration of the Chinese economy and, and Chinese demand. But at the same time, Latin America itself began to change. Some of the relatively left-oriented China-friendly governments began to be replaced. A few examples, you had uh, Mauricio Macri coming in Argentina. You had uh, the replacement of Rafael Correa by, by Lenin Moreno in, in Ecuador. Uh, you had um, uh, the weakening of the, um, the, the populist government in Venezuela and its increasing isolation. You had the ouster of Evo Morales in, 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 Boli in Bolivia, just, just to name a few. Um, and so in, in many ways, uh, that caused a, a certain amount of, of uh, increased caution um, and increased rethinking within China, although it was only um, temporal. A couple other things that's probably useful to, to mention. Uh, there's been an important change in the sectorial uh, composition of, um, of the China's focus. So a lot more attention on um, electricity infrastructure, a lot more attention on, on green energy, a lot more attention on, on digital technologies, which is a complement in many ways to the old focus on owning ports and building roads and petroleum and mining. Um, and, and of course, uh, even 
even within the mining sector, you see uh, you know, Chinese uh, emphasis now on lithium and capturing as much of the, the lithium value chains as possible. And that's become a major focus in, in areas like, like Chile and Argentina and, and Bolivia and, and Mexico. Um, now, in addition to that, uh, also useful to mention uh, and often not really focused on that much is the fact that the China has increasingly uh, emphasize its a desire to work with Latin America and others in the realm of, of space. You've had various satellites launched for Venezuela and in Bolivia. Um, you've had a major uh, space radar facility uh, that was uh, built in, in Argentina. Uh, with the, the return of the Lula government in Brazil, you've had the Cyber 6. But overall, there's um, that that uh, emphasis on, on working with Latin American space is oftentimes a uh, uh, overlooked a cornerstone. And then, of course, military engagement. Um, China has always been cautious with its military engagement in the region, uh, a combination of um, of uh, gifting of military equipment, selling military equipment. Um, and certainly, you can see in, in recent years, there's a, a bit of more willingness by China to take risks. So the electronic uh, intelligence uh, facility in, in Cuba, the, the negotiation of, of military to military training in, in Cuba, um, although still you do not see a desire or, or willingness by China to do what in Russia's style would be, you know, major show the flag operations, you know, sending, uh, you know, uh, combatant uh, ships regularly to, to the region, uh, seeking overt basing or, or, or alliance agreements. Um, and then finally, just some of the, the more recent changes I think that you've seen, um, obviously uh, COVID-19 um, suspended or, or froze many of Chinese projects in, in the region, um, although it also uh, created with it uh, a number of, of significant opportunities, first through China's uh, PPE diplomacy and vaccine diplomacy, although uh, many of those initial advantages actually uh, petered out as the, the limits of its vaccines became uh, apparent, and as uh, China's ability to engage under a regimen of, of zero COVID also uh, became uh, more of, of a liability than, than initial uh, opportunity. But as Essentially, where we're at now is a new wave of, I would say, Chinese re-engagement in the post-COVID era. You've seen, uh, again, the expansion of its multilateral diplomacy, um, a resumption of, of emphasis on, on Taiwan with the flips of, of Honduras and, and Nicaragua recently. Um, and also, you see an increasing importance uh, or, or role of its uh, its currency, the, the RNMB, and a desire to um, work with willing partners in the region, such as Brazil or Argentina, and multilateral forums such as the BRICS to push the RNMB and to try to dethrone the dollar to, to some degree. And that's strategically important over the long term. And then finally, you also see that uh, China is gradually and cautiously putting forth what I would call a more holistic, more political concept of engagement with the region. So uh, from 2013, we heard a lot about Belt and Road and, and uh, China has not abandoned Belt and Road. Um, but what you do see is uh, new pillars. First, the global Development Initiative, which kind of takes China back to its developmentalistic roots, uh, the Global Security Initiative, um, in which China just rolled out a, a new white paper uh, about uh, three months ago, uh, which actually incorporates Latin American institutions such as CELAC and in, in, in the BRICS, as well as a broad concept of security, um, and uh, what China calls its Global Civilization Initiative, which is, is part of what is really a broader kind of attack on uh, the U.S. concept or the U.S. assertion of, of having a monopoly o over its concept of, of democracy and human rights. And so by um, by taking that on, in many ways, it takes away what the United States has long had and, and through the Cold War, uh, a, a bit of a, a advantage in the, the value competition with, with China. 
So a lot is, is certainly happening and moving forward now um, as, as we look in, you know, here in 2023 and, and towards the future. That, that is, that is uh, an incredible summary of, of Chinese engagement. One thing that struck my mind and leads me to a uh, question. Um, you talked about the deceleration in about 2014. I have heard anecdotally that after she um, rise to power and he began his purge in mainland China of um, what was deemed by many to be an overly corrupt system, um, but of course had the dual benefit of uh, strengthening his hold on power. But that purge, which is a lot less talked about, also extended out outside of China to the operations of Chinese SOEs operating in places like Latin America and Africa, where pretty, um, pretty dramatic cases of corruption had been documented uh, and were made aware to the, by the Chinese and others as well. And there was a purge where country managers, Chinese country managers of different operations were brought back to China. And I mention this because one of, I think, the, the weaknesses or one of the limitations on China's ability to engage anywhere outside of the country is it's a very limited cohort of professionals who both have spent time in Latin America, speak Spanish and or Portuguese and understand the nuances of doing business there. It's a very, very small cohort and it's growing, but it's, uh, I would say the ambitions of China and Latin America seem to be bigger than their ability to execute in terms of that human capital. And that lack of experience and the overtly Chinese methods of dealing with things like community opposition on mining projects and the like, and the cultural insensitivities that come along with that, I think have deserved their ambitions in the past. How do you see that community of internationalists uh, that China can send to Latin America or that are being developed in Latin America? Um, how far along are they and how big of a, of a restriction is this on their ambitions there? That's a great question. Um, and probably it's, it's loosely valid to talk about uh, two different uh, generations of purges during the period. So back in the kind of the 2014, 2015, when at home you had, uh, you, you'd just gotten past the, the Bo Shilai, for, for, for example, as part of kind of uh, Xi's cons initial consolidation of power. Um, it, it, indeed, uh, that did send a chill through much of, uh, of Latin America. Again, uh, those uh, who had been accustomed to operating through, you know, bribery or personal benefit. And, and there was thus that that concern of okay, um, you know, are we now vulnerable? And so, in many ways, especially in sectors like mining operations, that probably restrained the advance or at least the style of, of many uh, companies. Now, later, especially right before the third um, uh, third uh, period of uh, Xi in power, uh, you had a secondary, I'd say, consolidation. Uh, that was when you, you you saw Xi going after, for example, Jack Ma and some of his companies and others who were perceived to be too independent in the newly emerging technology space. Um, and one can make the argument that uh, that actually did uh, set uh, uh, Chinese tech advances in, in certain innovative sectors back a, a notch or two. And, and uh, Xi's current policies may continue to restrain some of those more innovative, again, especially in, in areas uh, such as e-commerce. But the broader point also is the, the limited uh, number of people with experience. And I can tell you that 
that uh, is growing. Uh, the PRC has set up institutions uh, to to try to uh, you know study different parts of, of Latin America, among other places. Um, in the diplomatic corps, I've been impressed by not only uh, you know the the Spanish of some of China's leading diplomats, but but also uh, they're increasing bench strengths in, in consular offices and and uh, you know fluency in, in Portuguese and and even uh, I'd say the the Chinese may have more uh, more uh, credible Dutch speakers when they deal with places like Suriname than, than we in the United States do. Um, but more broadly. And, and I remember I, I used to teach in China during my uh, pre-government uh, days, and I recall, for example, in one occasion uh, being brought in uh, to State Grid, which was uh, then in the process of preparing a, what was later a massive expansion in Latin America. And they had actually set up for their individual um, managers a, a training program about uh, you know, how you do business in, in Latin America and what are some of the risks, what are some of the cultural nuances. Um, and so uh, the, the big SOEs, some better than others, uh, are um, if not only trying to acquire the capabilities through acquisitions, but, but also trying to train up their own staff, especially in some sectors do this better than others. And so, for example, Huawei, which from the very beginning um, has had to operate at a very uh, integrated level because, and again, in, in technology companies, you need uh, local customer service personnel, you need local sales reps, you, you need to feel like a local company, which is a little bit different than when you uh, just you know buy into a major, major uh, mining contract as it happened with the China Min Metals and, and, uh, and Las Bombas, for, for example. Um, but so I, I think you see in certain sectors like, like uh, like telecommunications, uh, that there is more bench strength and, and more of that understanding. But but certainly the Chinese do struggle with it. And especially in Latin America, where uh, the U.S. has uh, such greater cultural context and people who speak the language, um, I think it does continue to be an inherent advantage that, that we'd have. But um, I would say also that the Chinese are learning and, and they're, they're getting far better than they were even a couple of years ago. I think one of the areas that really um, worries people um, in the region is the incredible expansion uh, of, of China's digital economy. And, um, you know, of course, China, like the U.S., increasingly are the leaders of the world in the digital economy, whether it's e-commerce, whether it's telecommunications, whether it's software supporting those communications. And those are companies that um, want to pursue sales around the world. But of course, there's uh, there's intense debate about whether their intentions are purely commercial or whether they are in fact tentacles of a gross you know a large listening post capability by the Chinese that could lead eventually to interference uh, in domestic affairs. Um, what is your sense of of the expansion of these companies and how much of that fear is legitimate versus um, you know, being stoked by uh, those who want us to fear. Well, it's a great point. And I think uh, one has to differentiate between the attention of the companies and the intention of the Chinese state. I mean, and clearly the uh, 2017 uh, Chinese and national intelligence law makes it very clear that if there's something uh, that is of use to the state, its companies are obliged to turn it over. Um, and I would go farther to, to say that uh, the prioritization of uh, some digital sectors and supporting technologies like artificial intelligence, the internet of things, machine learning, et cetera, um, is not only because that is a 
an important uh, technology for you know the diversity of the Chinese economy, but also because that has a certain uh, you know strategic uh, benefits. Uh, indeed, it's interesting that if you look back to some of China's attempts to control, uh, for example, where the data from uh, rideshare companies like Didi Chuksung went, uh, there's been an explicit recognition of the intelligence value or, or things like um, you know uh, sensitivity over over uh, you know cameras and sensors on you know Tesla and, and other uh, automobiles. And so I think for the Chinese state, um, they see the expansion of, of these sectors as as a clear um, you know opportunity for intelligence and in other things. Um, now, having said that, uh, you know, does a, a company like Huawei, um, who ironically was uh, not one of the uh, favored Chinese companies, uh, if you go back to, you know, China Unicom and, and others, but over the years, it's kind of become the uh, the, the champion of China in, in the sector. But, uh, but the, you know, certainly, uh, you know, there is a, a certain level of, of complicity and understanding, although I, I, th I think at the same time, you know, Huawei would say that, uh, you know, there is a certain part of it that's pursuing it, its uh, legitimate interest in, in telecom. But beyond that, I think it's important to understand also just the level of vulnerability that comes from the extent of, of penetration. And so, uh, for example, right now, you know, Huawei across Latin America and elsewhere is far ahead of Nokia and Ericsson and, and others in terms of, of the offering in, in areas like, like 5G. But it's not just the technology and the price, but it's the fact that the Chinese are very good at leveraging existing advantages, like the fact that they control the supplier networks that uh, companies uh, you know, that compete with it actually have. They control much of the, the, the backbone already in Latin America, one estimate is maybe as much as 60% of the internet backbone in, in uh, Latin America going back to, to 4G and, and other things is, is Huawei or, or ZTE or, or other tech. And so it's very difficult to um, for others to, to compete in that space. But it's also, it's not just about telecom. Um, you know, Huawei, I believe, now has uh, nine different uh, cloud computing centers in Latin America. And again, um, you know, Foreign companies are, you know, who would never think of locating their intellectual property in China because they understand that China will force a local partner on them and try to basically steal their IP before they can force their way into the local market. Um, but oftentimes those foreign companies don't think about the vulnerabilities in a place like Latin America of, you know, okay, you know, locate your core intellectual property in, in the Huawei cloud and your sensitive processes, you know, what would possibly could go wrong. Um, and even beyond that, it's only the tip of the iceberg when you get into other areas, for example, um, the uh, biggest uh, supplier of, of cranes uh, in, in Latin America is, is ZPMC. Um, and actually the scanners that are on those cranes, uh, depending on who gets the, the data offloaded to, gives you enormous amount of information about every single container that's going in and out of its port and in those contents. Or for example, uh, Nuketech, the, the Chinese uh, supplier of, of scanners and the ability of those scanners to get certain electronic signatures and other things about basically everything that's going you know, through, you know, whether it's a, in a you know a customs or or another uh, you know, checkpoint, um, and then when you bring into uh, the, the equation ride sharing companies in, in e commerce and, and China's advances in digital banking and in other things, um, the the extent to which uh, the Chinese already have a, a strategically dominant profile in the digital sectors in, in Latin America. Um, again, it's not about what the intention of the companies are, but certainly the companies are favored by the state and the state understands that the company's dominance in those sectors and the, the company's ability to farther dominate through setting standards creates opportunities for the Chinese states in intelligence and advancing their strategic objectives. The Horizontes Leadership Forum is brought to you by America's Market Intelligence, the region's leading consultancy and advisory firm, 
serving companies operating in Latin America and Caribbean markets for over three decades. AMI's vast network of consultants located in every major market in the Americas gather vital market intelligence from privileged sources that our industry practice leaders turn into insightful analysis to help our clients, some of the largest investors in Latin America, make vital business decisions. Before you decide to invest, launch a product, choose a partner, enter a market or acquire a business, make sure your decision is an informed one. Find us at americasmi.com. That's A-M-E-R-I-C-A-S-M-I.com. And now back to the Odisantes podcast. No, and obviously the companies that want to fight back to, for the privacy of their data don't have the, the legal means to do that in a, in a country like China. Um, you talked about levers, uh, leverage. Um, what are some of the different levers of engagement by Chinese in Latin America? For instance, you have government-to-government lending and diplomacy. You have investment by both state-owned enterprises as well as Chinese private capital, which there's quite a bit in Latin America, um, including, of course, some global-reaching tech companies. You also have large trading companies in Hong Kong and Shanghai buying commodities on massive scale from Latin America for customers inside China. Yet we often refer to these collectively as China Inc. Um, is there, in fact, coordination between them or some kind of required permission from the Chinese government to do business in Latin America? That's a great question. Um, and first, it's probably important to just distinguish between levers of, of influence versus levers of, of action um, and levers that the government has versus the levers that uh, the private sector has. But uh, absolutely, I, I think it's it's important to recognize that, uh, you know, although there is clearly a uh, ability of the Chinese Communist Party to reach out and, and influence a range of different actors, even uh, nominally private ones, um, there is a considerable uh, diversity. Uh, you, you can talk about yet yeah, diversity within uh, SOEs, uh, SOEs at the national level ver versus uh, at the at the uh, you know, at the the the, um, you know, the more local levels, uh, you can talk about uh, you know companies like, for example, uh, Sani Heavy Industries, which are technically private, and yet uh, you know who, whose head is a you know key uh, you know Communist Party uh, leader, and so you have uh, vehicles of, of coordination through party ties as well as uh, just uh, you know, government ties, etc. But I, I tend to re regard uh, what the Chinese uh, tend to do as is. Uh, akin to herding cats. Um, for me, the state, uh, through it, its planning mechanisms and, um, and, and signaling, uh, sets uh, what it says is are its priority areas of engagement. Uh, you know, things like uh, you know green energy and digital technologies. Um, companies then understand those signals, and financial partners understand those signals of, of where it's preferred to um, dedicate effort. And, and the question then becomes, uh, you know, when uh, those companies are coordinating at the level of the Chinese embassy, um, you know, the Chinese embassy arguably uh, helps some companies uh, more more than others but um also it, it's probably important to to acknowledge that there has been an evolution of of who and how the Chinese are, um, you know, are, are behaving e even in the commercial space. So, for example, you mentioned um, you, you mentioned uh, the, the policy banks, uh, uh, so China Exim Bank and China Development Bank, and probably in recent years, especially in Latin America, you've seen an evolution from largely state-to-state -state policy bank lending to more of, of channeling of resources um, um, by companies, uh, Chinese uh, SOEs like like China Harbor, who actually invest in their own project, or China Construction Americas, uh, you know, otherwise. Known as CSCE, um, who um, 
who um, then reaches out to their private partner. You see that in projects now like the Bogota Metro or the Metro um, of the 80th Street in, in Medellin and in elsewhere. Um, also probably useful to, to mention here that uh, Chinese uh, are aren't users of free trade agreements. Um, oftentimes the expectation is an FTA is a Latin American vehicle for getting access to the Chinese market, where there's often an overestimation of the, the power of Chinese non-tariff barriers and keeping those Latin American companies out of their markets, but basically using FTAs to open up Latin American markets to Chinese goods and services providers. And you see this across the board, not only the older FTAs that the Chinese did and subsequently upgraded with, with Chile and Peru, and, and then of course the, the Costa Rica FTA, but the one that was just negotiated with, with Ecuador, uh, the new ones that are now being negotiated with Honduras and Nicaragua and El Salvador, um, and even the possibility of, of a um, resumed uh, talks on a, on a China-Mercosur uh, uh, FTA. But probably the, the final thing that's important to emphasize is that beyond just the commercial tactics and, and, and approaches, uh, there also is uh, levers of, of influence, which in part is to um, you know, support those commercial activities, but oftentimes also to silence those who would be critical of where the Chinese are, are going. Um, and a lot of that influence is about expectation of benefit and fear of losing benefit if one is seen as too critical about the, the Chinese state. And you see this with Latin American politicians and, and, and business people not wanting to, to, to speak out. Um, but also China is very good at, at weaving what I would say webs of influence through a massive level of people-to-people -people diplomacy. Uh, and it's not just the Confucius Institutes uh, of which uh, you have uh, you know um, around 40 in the, in the region but uh, you also have a, a the chinese are very good at bringing think tank personnel and, and consultants and, and, and academics and, and even congresspeople and, and journalists to China on, on these week-long trips. And while it might not compromise those people, it takes kind of the collective group of people in, in Latin America who are most potentially knowledgeable about the challenges of China and, and how to advance their country's interests uh, in the face of those. Um, and it neutralizes them to, to some degree because they don't want to seem you know, ungrateful or they want to seem more, more sophisticated. Um, and then, um, of course, recognizing that you also have some more, you know, overtly um, you know, concerning activities. And so the uh, Chinese Communist Party's International Liaison Department, uh, known as the United Front Work Department, which uh, coordinates through things like chambers of commerce and friendship societies across Latin America to basically act as, as lobbyists, if you, if you will. Um, and even to a certain degree, increasingly the use of, of the ethnic Chinese community in, in some Latin American states like, like, like Panama, um, or, or Peru bigger than bigger than others, but this new phenomenon that we see of, of Chinese police stations, uh, what it indirectly represents is the Chinese leveraging the ties between ethnic Chinese in China and in Latin America to induce their citizens to cooperate in certain ways, or at least not work against the, the Chinese state. Um, and again, so all of these things kind of come together and making it very difficult for Latin America to have a coherent logical um, way of, of thinking about its interests and how to fight for its interests vis-a-vis -vis China. Well, and that, that leads me to uh, looking at this engagement from the Latin American perspective, because clearly the China engagement in Latin America was initiated with China with the intentions and clear objectives that China had and clear economic needs. Um, but what do you think that Latin American governments hope to get out of their engagement with China. And to use a, to a, a metaphor from a famous film, who is the tail and who is the dog and who is wagging who, so to speak? 
It's, it's a great question. Um, and certainly there are a range of different motivations. I would say uh, in general, most tend to be about economic benefit in, in one way or, or another. Um, in my experience in talking with Latin American business and, and political leaders, um, I do sense that most in Latin America understand that the PRC and its companies are difficult and sometimes predatory actors, um, but also understand that it's a difficult actor that has significant amounts of money to put on the table and can put it on the table pretty quickly when it wants to without some of the political conditions or or human rights uh, or economic management uh, conditions that you find with, with Western institutions. And so kind of in that range of, of hopes, you have uh, Latin American governments and, and other personnel, uh, oftentimes hoping to achieve the benefits of, of getting a hold of Chinese money or, or China um, as a, a local partner um, with the hopes that they can manage the risks. Now, some of those uh, calculate that correctly, and, and some of them, them don't. Um, and when we talk about, for example, uh, you, act, you know, what are the benefits? Sometimes it's access to the Chinese market. Sometimes it's having the Chinese, uh, you know, come in as a local investor or, or a local partner. Um, Sometimes the benefit is for national development. Sometimes the, the benefit is for you know profit of the corporation that, that's partnering. Um, and sometimes, frankly, um, there is a, a strongly personal dimension. Uh, so if it's the um, you know, the, the brother-in-law's sister's company of, of the person who decides who gets the intermediation contract, oftentimes the, the the personal and the other benefits are difficult to entangle in these type of, of negotiations. Um, now, I, I would say that uh, it, it's fair to say there is benefit for Latin American uh, countries and in, in companies um, under the right conditions. Um, and to me, again, when you know you're dealing with a, a difficult partner, it, it's necessary to have transparency about the interactions uh, so that uh, you know it, the win-win isn't the elite signing the deal and as Chinese partner, but, but the country in general. Um, it's absolutely necessary to have good legal and contractual due diligence because the, the Chinese are um, very, very sophisticated in terms of, of negotiating uh, agreements to make sure that, that they get paid even when uh, things go south with the contracts. Um, the uh, Chinese are, are very good at bringing together combinations of coordination from, from government in, in multiple multiple sectors to uh, do package deals that, that others can't. Um, and, and again, the, the very leverage that the Chinese have to bring in things like, like personal benefit uh, makes it uh, sometimes uh, you know, complicated for the government question to to get the best deal. And that is why for me, um, you know, governments can get those benefits, but they absolutely have to be at the top of their game in terms of the you know, technical competence, in terms of, of the transparency and in terms of the strength of their institutions. That's fascinating. You know, you mentioned a, a really interesting point there. And I think uh, in an earlier conversation, you talked about in spite of all of the money that poured into Venezuela, China's done a pretty amazing job at recouping much of that. I imagine, uh, and I'm just imagining, I don't know the answer. Um, American companies like to use international arbitration. They often build that into their contracts so they don't have to fight the contract in the domestic courts of that country, but rather through international arbitration. I don't hear of many cases of Chinese companies arbitrating disputes uh, through such courts. So how is it that they manage, as you put it, to uh, extract benefit even in the most problematic contract situations? 
No, that's a, that's a great point. Um, and uh, I think it's important also to differentiate between different types of governments and the, the different approaches that the China uses for both. Because the Chinese actually, when dealing with a strongly institutionalized government like, like Chile, Uruguay, um, does try to play by, by those rules. And in some uh, cases, you'd say that the Chinese actually prefer uh, working in, in those more predictable circumstances. Um, it, it's interesting that uh, the Chinese actually do uh, also, uh, like Western companies, uh, try to use vehicles like arbitration. Matter of fact, there was a fast case uh, in the Bahamas, uh, the case of the, the $4.2 billion resort Bahamar. Um, and uh, uh, you know, Sarkis's Mirlin, who is the, the local partner, uh, you know, thought he, he could be in control of things uh, because he had uh, you know, contacts in the Bahamas and he knew how to use U.S. courts. Um, however, in the fine print of the, um, of the, uh, the, the agreement, uh, arbitration actually had to take place um, in a, a Hong Kong-based court when the, local, uh, when the Chinese partner, China Construction Americas, ran things into the ground. Ground, where suddenly as Mirlin found himself at a substantial uh, you know, disadvantage. Um, but it, so there are creative ways of doing that. Um, in terms of also some of the contractual clauses, um, there was a, an excellent study by William and Mary taking a look at 100 uh, different Chinese uh, contracts um, and points out that the Chinese oftentimes like to use things like, you know, number one, um, non-disclosure agreements um, that make it uh, difficult to even disclose that the level of uh, indebtedness or, or the, the terms of the contracts to, to, to others. Uh, but in addition to that, uh, things like cross-default clauses where, you know, if you, um, if you uh, default on on Project X, uh, the Chinese have the right to call in Project Y. Sometimes even political conditions uh, give it the right to call in contracts. Um, and so there are a range of, of different activities in, in which the Chinese can apply, you know, sometimes pressures that are maybe even legally questionable in, in what, terms of whether they can be enforced. But it does create a, a web of obligation that helps protect the Chinese projects. Um, and at the end of the day, there are other things. Um, for example, um, of, oftentimes, especially in um, in more populous countries, the Chinese uh, will set up contracts that have, are paid uh, by um, our, you know, performance and, and not necessarily on, on project completion nor the, the Chinese necessarily invest. And so there are many projects in, in Venezuela or elsewhere that have, have gone bad, but basically the Chinese have been paid for what they produced rather than, you know, whether there was actually a, an economic uh, you know, value of that. Uh, and also talking about populist states, um, the Chinese have done some rather interesting things in securitizing their um, their in investments, especially in, in Venezuela and in Ecuador, uh, with commodity payments. And so without getting too deeply into, into the details, uh, famously began doing this in, in Venezuela and then transferred the model to, to Ecuador. Um, basically, the Chinese set up parallel contracts where on the one hand, they created a essentially a line of credit in a, in a Chinese bank uh, in which uh, if uh, the Venezuelan government uh, wanted a uh, project done, whether it was you know, building a thermoelectric facility or repairing the Guri Dam or, or building a, a train line, there's a one from Tanaco uh, to, to Anaco in the internal interior of Venezuela, um, you basically could use this line of credit with the work be done by Chinese companies. And then in parallel, um, uh, Chinese oil companies who are operating on, on the ground, especially um, CNPC with, with Petavesa, um, had uh, agreements to produce certain amounts of oil. Um, it would be recompensed. Um, and the oil deliveries would then be credited to the money owed uh, in China. Now, the magic of this is that, you know, by contrast to Western loan disbursements, where if you don't want to pay the loan, you just say, oh, I'm not going to send the check, like Rafael Correa did with the IMF back in, back in 2008. Um, but to default on uh, 
this type of arrangement where the money is actually never really left China, um, you know, the Venezuelan government would have had to have uh, literally stopped production by CNPC in its oil wells to basically stop the transfer of oil to, to repay the loan. And that was ironically one of the reasons why that even though the Chinese defaulted on, I'm sorry, even though the Venezuelans defaulted on just about everybody else in, in those uh, last years, um, including uh, even Igor Sechin and, and the Russians, that up until the very, very end, the Chinese were still getting regularly paid. And so there is a variety of different instruments that operate both in, in more formalistic traditional settings where the Chinese are increasingly adept, but also um, special arrangements that help to ensure that the Chinese get paid, even with some of those most, uh, um, you know, most uh, worrisome uh unpredictable uh, you know, arrangements in, in populist countries. The Chinese are very, very good at making sure they get paid. The Horizontes Leadership Forum is brought to you by America's Market Intelligence. Each year, AMI's most senior practice leaders, led by your podcast host, John Price, are invited by over 50 conference, seminar, and private business meeting organizers to provide their insights, predictions, and opinions concerning the most pressing business trends and challenges of the day in the Americas. To learn more about how your next regional planning meeting or conference can be enhanced by a presentation from AMI's leadership team, visit us at americasmi.com. That's A-M-E-R-I-C-A-S-M-I dot com. And now... Back to the Horizontes podcast. I want to switch gears a little bit to a very hot topic, and that's, of course, nearshoring. Um, and nearshoring is something that uh, has been was was working at a, at a very slow pace, going back almost a decade, because Chinese variable manufacturing labor costs began to rise above those of Mexico and Central America about ten years ago. Um, you add to the mix, of course, the political imperative to decouple supply chain linkages with China, um, which is a you know partly commercial, partly political. Um, but what you've got today, of course, is this nearshoring bonanza, most notably in Mexico, but also important in Central America. Not only are U.S. firms moving assembly to Latin America, but Chinese assemblers who want to hold on to their U.S. customers are setting up shop in Mexico. I've heard. Numbers of over 500 different companies have moved their Chinese companies just in the last two years. What do you make of this trend? And as we know, uh, Chinese investment in Mexico before this uh, trend really became big was rather limited in part because Mexicans view China as a competitor, whereas South America is much less so. Is there, in fact, a Chinese, a China Inc. strategy in Mexico? And what might it be? Well, a series of great questions. Uh, so first of all, for me, at least in the, the near to medium term, uh, decoupling is, is certainly a reality. Now, the question is, what is the relationship between decoupling, nearshoring, and, and other options like um, you know, like like friendshoring, for example? In other words, uh, saying that uh, you, you want to protect uh, you know, from having uh, Chinese companies in, integrated into your um, into your value chain so you can go to Korea or Japan or, or, or elsewhere. Um, and, and so to me, the way in which those incentives, um, and there are different incentives incentives uh, in terms of, of issues with, with costs, including uh, you know, new logistics costs, uh, issues with different types of risks, not only uh, you know, IP risks, logistics risks, 
from you know running halfway around the world, market access risks in, in the future, depending on expectations about you know the the sanctioning of, of you know uh, you know companies registered in China, etc. Um, but for me. In different industries, um, what makes sense to uh, whether one goes to nearshoring or, or, or friendshoring or uh, you know, inventory management or some combination of things, um, different industries have different uh, you know, imperatives there. Also, as you alluded to, um, it's not inherent that, for example, Mexico and or Central America automatically uh, is the beneficiary of all of these things. Um, you know, from when one actually is looking at at uh, concrete, you know, cost and, and risk assessment, um, you know, countries like Mexico have a lot of risks of their own in terms of, of violence, uh, increasing electricity costs, the prioritization of, CS, uh, of CFE in Mexico, um, you know, for electricity production, uh, the question of uh, juridical stability, uh, you know, wh where things are at with, with the AMLO government right now, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so um, in the range of saying that there's a lot of ifs, uh, but I'd also point out that even before the current um, current uh, move to uh, nearshoring, uh, Chinese companies had actually been in Mexico for, for quite some time. Um, up until the, the prior year, according to uh, um, probably what for me is one of the most authoritative sources, the uh, the uh, Latin America China um, network uh, for, for tracking these um, investments, uh, Mexico had received in the past 20 years about $21 billion in, in about 150 different Chinese projects. A lot of those were in the auto and auto parts sector, as well as the port sector and telecommunication, et cetera. Um, but you're absolutely right. In, in spite of the AMLO government, uh, certainly investment in, in Mexico is actually up. You see the you know, the Taiwanese looking to come in with the chip manufacturing. Um, you, of course, you, you see the move, the, the, the big new Tesla plant, and, and Tesla itself is trying to bring, um, you know, Elon Musk is trying to bring his Chinese suppliers there, there to Mexico. Um, now, the question of, of whether there is a China Inc. strategy, um, I, I certainly would suspect that there probably is some clandestine thinking within the you know, Ministry of Foreign Commerce, within MOFCOM, um, that, that talks about uh, you know, wanting to be, be in Mexico. But I think it's also reflecting the imperatives of individual Chinese companies. Um, you know, they understand that essentially decoupling puts them at risk and their access to the U.S. market at risk. So their rational way of responding is to try to basically make themselves not Chinese. In other words, uh, being integrated as Mexican companies in, in Mexico-based supply chains for access through, um, you know, through um, th through USMCA. Um, also, I've I've heard uh, similar things to what you alluded to. Um, I think one uh, recent estimate I saw is as much as twenty percent of all FDI in, in this year may be Chinese companies. Um, when you look at uh, some of the kind of the traditional maquiladora uh, sector areas, uh, places like Nuevo León, um, some industrial parks are, are reporting uh, as much as is eighty percent Chinese companies um, in, in in those value chains. So it certainly is a very real phenomenon. Um, I think one of the interesting questions is whether Mexico has, you know, we, we asked whether China has a Mexico strategy. Um, the more longstanding and disturbing question is, is does Mexico, um, especially the, the the economic ministry, have a coherent China strategy? That's, that's something that Mexicans have, have long bemoaned. And the answer is probably it hasn't and, and continues you know, not to. Um, and then I, I would finally in the broader um, kind of U.S., Mexico, and U.S., Latin America context, I, I would emphasize that there are strategic implications as well. To the extent that there is this expansion of Chinese companies in Mexico, that will expand Chinese uh, influence in Mexico, that will raise issues that will become part of the U.S.-Mexico dialogue, as, as well as uh, you know, some of the uh, you know, technical dialogues within USMCA of, of how do we assess risks and, and how do we distinguish between a Mexican company that is of Chinese characteristics and, and others. 
And so I, I suspect that this move, which is real, will put a lot of issues on the table in the U.S.-Mexico relationship in the years to come. Yeah, I think the arrival of so many Chinese companies to Mexico, although I believe that there's less of a coordinated push there than there is in pursuit of natural resources and other assets in South America. But nonetheless, I think it's really a woken concern in Washington. Um, speaking of decoupling and uh, this notion that some countries might have to choose between uh, align themselves with the United States versus China, most leaders in Latin America across the political spectrum loathe the idea of having to choose one or the other. There, there are serious commercial benefits from doing business with both. But I imagine there are some tough strategic, perhaps intelligence-driven, military-driven uh, defense concerns and, and, and choices that will have to be made by some leaders. Um, what do you think those might be? Um, and And how do you envision those choices? Sure. Well, of course, uh, officially, the Biden administration is is not asking you know, U.S. partners in the region to, to choose. Um, and I can tell you also, you know, having uh, worked for Secretary Pompeo 2019-2020, uh, despite some of the the you know the strong and polemical you know discourse uh, during during that time, um, you know, the official policy even then wasn't asking our partners to to, to choose. Um, I think uh, certainly there's greater emphasis now with the Biden administration of basically trying to encourage partners like um like 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 Mexico or, or others in in the region to take a a different what I call a longer view of what is in their own you know good um you know and not just uh, in terms of of sorting out national versus particularistic uh, you know benefits but things like well what is really the value proposition when you look at the track record of of you know the Chinese construction companies that you're bringing in or you know the question of, of who benefits we, we talked about Bahamar for for example before um and uh, you know while one can say that uh, you know it, it's great to have, uh, you know, 5,000 people employed in, in the hotel. Um, if you look back and you say, well, how did the Bahamas get to this point in, in which, uh, you know, something that accounts for literally 12% of the entire Bahamian economy um, is actually owned by you know, a PRC company with the the profits being remunerated to to the PRC and, and not the the Bahamian economy. Um, so, so I think there are the, the questions. You know, really, there's there's a need to kind of take that that longer term. What is the national um, you know benefit? But in general, I think it's clear that you know the U.S. is not going to tell you know Latin American governments that okay we won't work with you because you know you've gone with the Chinese in this project or or, or another. Um, frankly, I think the broader risk is, is often that the Chinese money has been an enabler of governments who want to move away from the U.S., especially illiberal governments for for other reasons, whether it's um, you know Venezuela, or Ecuador, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so, um, but. But yes, there are there are I think issues of concern. I think uh, first and forefront is is when local governments are essentially forging de facto political alliances with the Chinese, and so this goes to Lula in, in Brazil, for example, uh, talking about uh, working through the BRICS to try to collaborate to, to dethrone the dollar and, and move away from the United States. Or um, when you look at uh, military arrangements, uh, so we mentioned Cuba before. Um, again, you know having a you know over, you know a, a chinese electronic intelligence collection facility and chinese troop training um you know so close to, to, to us shores um you know certainly uh, you know raises I, I think some issues um in a wartime scenario um certain 
decisions about what we call dual use facilities. And so a certain space facilities or, or certain port facilities, which could easily be, be used to um, you know, basically receive and project forces that could be used against the United States in, in time of war. Uh, again, even in those cases, it's not to say that the United States will try to block the granting of a port to the United States. But it, it's important for partners to understand that those choices about you know who is the port operator, um, you know who has access to their space architecture, um, in time of conflict that could put those governments into some very uncomfortable you know choices and and uh, objects of, of China's leverage. Um, and certainly there are certain sectors which I would say are more sensitive than others, uh, as we've talked about already. Um, you know the digital sector where you know China's national intelligence law you know makes it clear that uh, by committing to that otherwise you know cheaper and maybe even better Huawei uh, architecture solution, you know the country is putting the you know, ability to protect the IP of those who invest in the country you know, at, at risks. Um, but to me, I think the issue isn't so much the choice of, of China versus the US, and maybe not even in different sectors, but I think it's, it's a question of maintaining strong institutions, making decisions that are defensible in the context of, of transparency, um, and what I would call diversification. In other words, uh, not finding oneself backed into a situation in which uh, one has to go with the Chinese because because, you know, they essentially, you know, own your debt or, or, or own your economy. And so I, so I think that basically keeping institutions and options healthy is, is in my judgment, uh, probably the key from the perspective of, of our Latin American partners. No, that's a great point. And, you know, another area that's uh, been a hot topic of late is uh, predictions, pretty bold predictions of the rise of the renminbi as a uh, currency of choice in in transactions of trade, um, in currency reserves. And, you know, people have been calling for the demise of the dollar. Um, and yet, when you look at the numbers, um, just under 2% of cross-border payment transactions are in renminbi and about 5% of cross-border trade, which is um, a smaller portion than China's trade. So in other words, a lot of Chinese trade is still in dollars. Um, these are low numbers, but they are growing. Um, does it matter? Is this, is, this sub, is this a false alarm? Are we, are we getting upset about something that's really not that important? Uh, or do you think it does matter to Latin American companies, banks, and central banks? Well, John, it absolutely does matter. Um, and actually, this reminds me of when I first uh, started tracking uh, Chinese uh, investment and activity in Latin America back in about 2002, 2003. Um, and the refrain then was, well, it's such a low number and and we are so far ahead and we're the investor of choice. Um, you know, we'll, we'll keep an eye on it, but really nothing to worry about. Um, I think the important thing is understanding where things are going and if there's the possibility of, of getting there. And so as I look at the, the question of RNMB, I think number one, it, it's clear that China understands that a world um, in which uh, the, the dollar and to a certain extent the um, the euro are you know, the unquestionably dominant currencies is a world that puts China at a strategic advantage um, and disadvantage, and it needs to move away from that disadvantage. It recognizes that on, on the one hand, um, you know, the vulnerability to things like um, you know, sanctions policy 
is you know the U.S. use of the SWIFT system has become so very apparent uh, with you know Russia in Iran and in others, even Venezuela. Um, but then reciprocally, um, from the perspective of long-term strategic competition, um, if the U.S. suddenly or over time loses its ability to be the place where everyone wants to, to park their um, you know their money in times of, of distress, if, if the U.S. can no longer count on being able to basically borrow as much as it wants at reasonable rates. Um, and, you know, that would force the United States to have to considerably rethink, um, you know, what it spends money on, whether, you know, defense or social programs or development or, or, or other things. I mean, it would be transformational. And so for me, um, when, uh, you know, China is is actively working um, for it on a digital uh, yuan, when it's actively working uh, to set up these uh, bank, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, you know swap arrangements with Argentina and in Brazil and the tens of billions of dollars and the currency clearinghouse arrangement with People Bank at China with with, with Chile, uh, when uh, they're actively moving towards promoting um, greater renminbi trade. Although right now there are drops in the bucket. To me, it's, it's a clear demonstration of China's understanding of this generational project um, and, and working towards uh, you know, doing so. And so as I look at that happening, um, what I also see is that um, there is on the behalf of other partners, although there's a cost associated with moving away from dollars, you increasingly see the desire, especially by illiberal regimes, to do so. If you talk about, uh, um, again, Argentina and Brazil, relatively large numbers of transactions. If you talk about the prospect of, of Saudi Arabia with its vast oil money joining the BRICS or trying to move away from dollarized transaction, uh, you throw into the, the mix Russia and, and Iran and, and others. Um, and so as you start getting a, a critical mass of, of countries who will all want Want to incur those costs to move away from a world in which they are vulnerable to the, the, the dollar, um, it begins to look like a, a very real prospect that, again, you know, as with me watching over the past 20 years, the rise of China trade and, and presence on the ground, um, it may be a generational project, but, um, you know, the fact that it's a generational project uh, does not prevent China from working in one way or another with fits and starts and and adjustments from from trying to get there. And so I think um, in 30 years, we will be having a very different conversation, just like we're having a very different conversation about China's uh, investment in Latin America than we had when I first started in this uh, back in the early 2000s. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, given that all that you've discussed over the last hour or so, um, which is just, I'm going to have to listen to this a couple of times to absorb it all. You've just been an incredible encyclopedia of, of knowledge and an explanation of a very complex relationship that has evolved very quickly. And I think uh, it will it will behoove many people to listen to this for that very reason. But is there an end game, uh, an end goal to China's engagement with Latin America? And what dramatic headlines might we read over the next, say, five years related to China-Latin American relations? Well, for me, there's certainly a long game. Um, I'm not sure if I would say that there's an end game, um, because for me, uh, China sees itself as a continuing enterprise, ever adapting without necessarily looking to, you know, get to, you know, one end state. But um, I think in general, um, you know, China is certainly looking to essentially structure its position commercially and otherwise in Latin America in its relationships commercially and otherwise in Latin America to its own benefit. Um, and as we've talked about already, I think that involves 
um, you know, uh, China having essentially secure access to the resources and foodstuffs that it needs for the Chinese people. It involves having a dominant position in key markets and technologies in part through its participation in Latin America. Um, but even more importantly, on terms of engagement that are beneficial to it and in ways that Chinese companies and not others are capturing the value added in those, the, the, those chains. Now, as a corollary to that, I certainly think it also implies uh, having a China-friendly region in which, uh, you know, while governments do what they want with their own people and own constitutions, I think China is pretty neutral on that. Um, the idea is that it, it's a region of uh, Chinese associates who are willing to, to work with China and willing to give China the access that it wants on its terms. Um, and on the other side, uh, not essentially actively aligning with its rivals, specifically the, the United States, um, in ways that could put uh, you know, Chinese access or, or Chinese security at, at risk. Um, now, probably a couple other details. Uh, you know, certainly in the near term, um, you know, we would like to see a Latin America and the Caribbean without any Taiwan recognizing states. Uh, but I think probably within the next couple of years, it would like to see uh, a the non-existence of an autonomous Taiwan, which you know will certainly resolve that issue. Um, beyond that, uh, I think also some corollaries. I think in Latin America, China would like to have an institutional environment that facilitates those type of access um, and influence that it wants and, and coordinating mechanisms. Um, I think that implies a continuing strengthening of its relationship with CELAC, its relationship with an expanded BRICS, um, and basically engaging with Latin America in those type of institutions that are on its terms and, and do not have the U.S. and Canada have a seat at the table like the OAS, for example, currently does. Um, beyond that, as we've talked about, I, I think uh, China certainly wants a financial environment that facilitates that, including uh, you know a, a substantial portion of trade in renminbi and not dollar dependence. Um, and to go a little bit farther, I would say that over the long term, while China is not looking to militarily dominate Latin America in any means, I do believe that the China would like to get to the point where it can certainly have military capability and access to Latin America that allows it, just like the United States, uh, you know, long has been able to, you know, intervene around different parts of, of the world to protect uh, its corporate personnel, et cetera. I, I think that the Chinese would like to have, you know, just as we saw in the Wolf Warrior movies, um, the, the free and relationships that would allow its uh, you know, power and, and access to protect its personnel and, and, and corporate investments. And frankly, if it ever came to um, you know, a military conflict with the United States, um, options that would allow it to project a challenge against the United States uh, in, in this hemisphere in support of the more core focus of protecting um, you know, China itself in, in its own hemisphere. So again, I, I think it's, it's an ongoing project which China is trying to achieve in a relationship that will continue to evolve. I don't think China will ever say, okay, we have enough, we've achieved our goals. Um, but, uh, but, but I think that's the general direction where I see China headed. No, that, that's a perfectly logical, logical trajectory. Um, I mean, obviously many things can happen in the, in the medium term, but that, that seems to make a lot of sense. And I think that, uh, both companies that operate in Latin America uh, need to be aware of the trajectory of China and Chinese companies, and of course, governments uh, and how they interact. Dr. Ellis, um, this has been a real education. Uh, but before we sign off, I, I, I want to remind listeners of just how prolific a writer you are. And, and it, could you help us out and tell us 
Are there a website or two where we can, uh, those who are interested, find out more about your writings and and your recordings and and podcasts and such? Absolutely. I appreciate the opportunity. Um, So I do have uh, my own website uh, where I do uh, put uh, both my my podcasts and and, uh, my my publications. Um, It's uh, revanellis, all one word, uh, dot com. Um, Also, uh, for those who are interested, I have a a Substack uh, distro where uh, every time I publish something, I send it out. So uh, if you're interested, um, you can access uh, that from my website, um, or you can also go directly to um, evanellis.substack.com to get on the distro list for my my periodic publications. And I certainly appreciate the opportunity to to be on the show and, and share uh, my, my thoughts with you on, on these issues. Terrific. Well, thank you again. It's been wonderful. I used up far too much of your time, but it was uh, I could have kept going. It's really fascinating to hear all that you have to say on the China-Latin American engagement. And um, I look forward to future engagements with you. Thanks so much, Dr. I do as well. Thank you, John. All the best. Likewise. Thank you for joining us for another Horizontes podcast, where we discuss key topics and challenges facing Latin American business leaders, featuring expert guests from a variety of fields and backgrounds. Horizontes is brought to you by America's Market Intelligence, the leading Latin American market intelligence consultancy. We gather the research, conduct the analysis, and form the recommendations in the bespoke fashion that companies require to make wise business decisions in Latin American and Caribbean markets. You can find Horizontes on all major podcast directories like Apple, Amazon, Spotify, and more. Or you can visit our website, americasmi.com and look for Horizontes under the Thought Leadership menu.